I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Stephanie Lidecker and forensic expert Joseph Scott Morgan. Over his career, Joseph's handled thousands of death investigations, including over 7,000 autopsies. Joseph also recently worked on the KT Studios documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, which is now streaming on Peacock. Joseph also hosts his own podcast, Body Bags, available everywhere. Episode 38, The Case of the Power Couple, The Loan, and The Fatal Drive Home. If Atlanta's upper crust had a royal couple, it would be Diane and Tex MacGyver. With successful careers, beautiful homes full of designer clothes and a loving marriage, the pair seemed to just shine brighter than others. Diane and Tex met in 2000 when Diane moved to a luxury high-rise building in downtown Atlanta. Before she could fully unpack, everyone in the building was talking about the Chanel-wearing advertising vice president. Despite being recently divorced, Diane was known for her kind spirit and high energy. She was physically beautiful, but also had a commanding confidence that was tantalizing. While she could have had her pick of the single men in town, one eligible bachelor caught her eye, Tex MacGyver. Ten years her senior, Tex was a wealthy labor lawyer who spent his time between downtown Atlanta and a sprawling farmhouse that he dubbed The Ranch. After a painful and expensive divorce, Tex was consumed with work and love was the last thing on his mind. But he couldn't resist Diane. Quickly, the pair became inseparable and they rarely fought. Friends who knew them described Diane as the love of Tex's life. For the first time in her life, Diane truly felt like someone cared about her, not her money or her connections. The couple was known to throw over-the-top, legendary parties at the ranch where Atlanta's privilege would let their hair down. From political fundraisers to birthday bashes, Diane loved playing hostess. With Tex hanging back as the consummate gentleman, Diane took the lead. After five years of dating, Tex proposed to Diane with a $60,000 diamond ring. After much planning, they had a lavish wedding. Diane rode a horse-drawn carriage to the ceremony and changed gowns multiple times. She was truly a Southern belle. Here's Stephanie. So what Diane really loved about Tex specifically was that he didn't want anything from her. They were both financially equal and they were both really smart business people. So they were wise enough to maybe keep their finances separate. They pretty much agreed on everything, seemingly, but according to friends and family, the one thing they didn't agree about 
was this massive party house that was built at their ranch. So this party house was for friends and families to come to. Diane really, really wanted it and Tex did not. Although he did let her build it, but she had to pay for it. And that ended up being this building that they referred to as the saloon. And that becomes a big piece of the story ultimately. On September 25th, 2016, Diane and Tex had spent another glorious weekend at the ranch with a friend, Danny Joe Carter. Tex made sausage and served Diane breakfast in bed before the couple and Danny Joe played golf and headed back towards Atlanta. After stopping for a steak dinner and a few glasses of red wine, Tex asked Danny Joe to drive the rest of the way. Soon the trio, Tex and his wife Diane and their friend Danny Joe, found themselves in gridlocked Atlanta traffic. According to Danny Joe, Diane suggested they get off the highway and take surface streets, so she pulled the white Ford Explorer SUV towards the off-ramp. As they made their way off the highway, Tex, who had been asleep in the back seat, woke up. He told his wife Diane and their friend Danny Joe that they were headed towards a bad neighborhood. It was full of homeless people and Black Lives Matters protesters. Nervous, he asked his wife to grab his gun, which they kept in the center console of the car. Diane obliged. A few minutes later, Danny Joe remembered hearing what she thought was an explosion. She slammed on the brakes and looked at her friend Diane in the passenger seat. Diane was bleeding. Tex had shot her from the back seat. Quickly losing blood, the trio raced to a hospital where Diane underwent emergency surgery. Her final words before being put under to the doctor were that her husband Tex didn't mean to shoot her. Two hours later, Diane was dead. Take a listen to some of Tex's interrogation as he described the shooting. We went through an area, um, I could describe my familiarity with it, but we went through an area I thought it was particularly dangerous. Remember any landmarks or anything? Uh, it was an underpass. Okay. It's best I, you know, it's very dark, but it seemed to me it was. And that's one that has a particularly high population of homeless people. Okay. At least in the daytime. But at night, there were a lot of people there. Okay. And, and I quickly said, uh, this is a big mistake. If you don't mind, please hand me my gun. There's so much to unpack here, Joseph. My first question to you is, how would somebody accidentally get shot like that? Anytime I hear somebody has been accidentally shot, my spotty senses go off. I automatically, my default position is, you're gonna have to prove to me that this is in fact an accidental shooting. Because if not, my assumption is you're lying. When you say accidental, that means that it's, it's just kind of a randomized event. There has to be a series of events that occur prior to the discharge of the weapon. And what, what's key here is this particular weapon, because this weapon is unique. If people reflect back to any kind of old Western movie you've seen, and you know, you think about the pistols that were carried back then, and yeah, they have a trigger with a trigger guard, but they also have what's referred to as an external hammer, and that's the stem that's on the back of the weapon that you cock it with, and that's called a hammer. You know, when you think about that weapon being cocked, that initiates a sequence, okay? Then the trigger actually has to be actuated. That means pulled. It slams the hammer forward, hits the firing pin, strikes the primer cap that's inside of the bullet. That discharges the primer, hits the propellant, and it drives the bullet out of the weapon. Now that's in what's called single action. 
single action means that you can only actuate the, the gun by pulling the hammer back. The weapon that Tex had in this vehicle is a Smith & Wesson 38 Special Airweight. And they're very, very light, easy to manage. It's, you know, some people will say it's a, a purse pistol or a pocket pistol. It's easily concealable. Many times it'll only have five shots. Now, this is a revolver we're talking about. It's not a semi-automatic weapon. It's a revolver, and it's easily concealable. But the interesting thing about it is, with this particular weapon, it's got what's called a shroud on the back of it. So when you're looking down on it, the stem, you don't see the stem, the hammer, if you will, where you pull it back. It's kind of guarded. It's got a shroud over it. And so you literally have to press your thumb down on this hammer to pull it back. And it's kind of got a, a textured waffled appearance on top of it so that you can grip it if your hands get sweaty. Now, the one that you say, well, why in the world would somebody want a pistol like this? Well, I'll tell you why somebody would want a pistol like this. Because if you keep it in your pocket or in your waistband, when you pull the weapon out, the hammer doesn't hang on the fabric of your clothing. It's a smooth transition out of your pocket so that you have this thing and it doesn't catch on anything. And it's easy. This is not an offensive weapon. This is a weapon that is a defensive weapon that you would carry for your own personal protection. You're not going to be shooting at great ranges or anything like this. You know, most lethal shootings, most of those occur certainly within 10 yards, if not closer, many times five yards. Of, of the target. What I'm saying is handguns are made for personal defense and no greater example exists than this lightweight Smith. It's a 38 special caliber. So it's a, a kind of a medium round. It's robust enough to do quite a bit of damage. This was the caliber that all FBI agents carried. This is the caliber that police officers used to carry before they went to semi-automatic weapons. So it's been in use for years and years. You can find tons of 38 specials out there. And, you know, when they were traveling down the road, according to the testimony, they had gotten off of the interstate at this point in time. I-75 and I-85 actually merge in downtown Atlanta, and it's called the 7585 Connector. It's always crowded, very congested, but they had gotten off of this route in order to go east, essentially. And you start taking surface streets. Well, according to what the perception was, and let's keep in mind, there were protests that were going on around the country at this particular time. And this, according to Tex, was in the forefront of his mind. BLM protests, that sort of thing. And there, in this area, there are homeless people. And so not being from this particular area, he became hyper aware, if you will. And he asked or requested that the weapon that's being carried in the vehicle that was in the center console be retrieved and handed to him in the back seat. Well, there's all these different narratives that have kind of gone around relative to what he did in the back seat. You know, some people have him dozing off, you know, while they're going down the road. Other people, he's hyper aware. He's got the weapon at the ready. I've heard it stated that he had the weapon in his right hand, took it, and it was resting on his right thigh as he's going down the road. And for some reason, he reached up and actually pulled his hammer back so that all you would have to do is just tap the trigger like that, and the thing fires. And remember, one of the things that kept coming up at trial, and I, I found this kind of fascinating, is that the road is kind of bumpy. And so you're getting slammed about. And I think that this was one of the things, that he had the weapon resting in his lap, cocked, 
and hit a bump. And when he did, his finger hit the trigger and it went off and discharged. And it's at that point in time where she struck. This round actually traversed kind of diagonally across her midsection and wound up uh, going through her body. Let's talk about the placement, just so we have it clear. Because uh, there's three people driving, right? Well, three people riding, yeah. So three people are riding together. Can you tell me the placement of everybody in the car at the time of this shooting? Diane is actually in the front passenger seat. Tex is to the rear of Diane, okay? So he's immediately seated behind her. And I've often imagined this dynamic in this vehicle where he's kind of putting out this fear vibe, if you will. You know, he's he's putting this out there that he's uncomfortable in this environment. And again, this is me kind of superimposing my thoughts, but he, you know, he kind of leans forward and says, get the weapon out, out of the, you know, this is dangerous area. Make sure the doors are locked. And so you've got this dynamic going on between them. The lady that's driving the vehicle, you can imagine, you know, why, why do you think that it's dangerous? You know, and she, you know, she's tensed up, Diane's tensed up and then text, they retrieve the weapon, give it to him and he's seated in the back seat. And so you're talking about relative position. Now this is an SUV. And then suddenly the weapon discharges and that round slams forward through that seat and it passes through all those layers and then into her body. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is a story that has the making of a very tragic accident. Now, Diane has been shot. To your original point, the way that Diane was shot would suggest that maybe she could have survived. You know, we find out that she doesn't, of course, unfortunately, but, you know, if this was an overly planned event, maybe there was a way to have more of a sure shot, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's the way I look at it. And can I just briefly tell you why she actually didn't survive? If this shot had actually been maybe two inches lower, there's a high probability that it would have been survivable. One thing, Joseph, that always stuck with me about this case and also stuck with detectives was that it was sort of odd what hospital they chose to go to. So imagine the scene you just painted, screaming and panic and trauma setting in at the time of the accident or at the time of the shooting. They were about five miles from four different hospitals. And Tex made the decision forcibly to go to a very specific hospital, Emory Hospital, as opposed to maybe a hospital that was better known for its trauma unit that would have been closer. I see all sides of this. On the one hand, I could imagine go to the closest place that does make sense. And on the other, you know, if I'm a person who maybe knows a particular hospital or knows the doctors or are accustomed to being there, I would maybe go there. What is your take on that? He chose to go to Emory, which is obviously a fine hospital. It's a teaching hospital. One of the most highly regarded medical schools in the country is located at Emory. 
However, they were within a stone's throw of Grady Hospital. And you will hear this a lot from police officers and firefighters. They will say, if I am ever shot, if I am ever burned, take me to X. Because they know, <laughs> they know that in an acute situation that requires every bit of skill, they want to go to that level one trauma center that can handle any kind of, of problem. The fact that Tex, and I think that this was one of the things the prosecution kind of played into, was that he directed Danny Joe to drive to Emory, which is miles beyond Grady. Now, would it have made a difference if they had gotten her to Grady as opposed to going all the way to Emory? I don't know, particularly, you know, you take into account again, you know, I'd mentioned this injury to the diaphragm. I don't know how they would have been able to do that. Maybe they could stem the bleeding and have gotten her onto a vent until they can, you know, correct this, this issue with the diaphragm. But, you know, in a situation like this, with this kind of trauma, it's tracking through multiple organs, vessels, and the diaphragm, which even adds another layer of complication that window begins to narrow precipitously in this particular case. And that's what happened in this instance, that it was troubling. The prosecution, they exploited that in this trial, but, you know, because they talked about, you know, that he directed them to go to Emory. And, you know, the answer to that is he knows physicians there. He knows that it's a fantastic hospital. Wouldn't you want the best for your wife? You know, that sort of thing. And of course, playing devil's advocate, you got somebody saying, no, no, no. He knew if you have to drive that distance, she's going to pass on. Well, how can you do the calculus on that? You know, first off, if he's this monster that's trying to take her life, he's kind of rolling the dice here in the first place when he takes that shot. There's no guarantee that this is going to happen. Now you're adding another layer to this where you're saying, oh, okay, well, not only is he taking this random shot, hoping that it's going to clip essential organs and structures and that sort of thing, which it did, but now just to ensure things, he's going to compel the driver to drive a further distance. So you can see how this kind of takes on a life of its own. And everybody that's, that's watching this thing, you got people shaking their heads saying, wow, yeah, this guy's like a criminal mastermind. And other people are saying, wait, is this just a series of unfortunate events? Well, that's the tricky part at this point too. I always come down on both sides. On the one hand, what a masterful plan. He's driving through an area. He's giving a backstory in his mind sort of setting it up that it was an accident, at least to Danny Joe, this poor driver. There's traffic, so makes sense that he gets onto a side road, perhaps it's bumpy, the gun deploys, and here we are, he goes to the hospital that he knows the best because to your point, he might know the physician. On the other side, maybe he wanted to kill his wife and he does, and he has the perfect alibi, and maybe he wasn't a sure shot, but he was a fairly decent shot and when in the line of fire, he went to the hospital that was furthest away so that his beloved wife would die on the way, or perhaps he had some inroads of someone who would maybe cover for him on the other side. Again, a lot of things would have to go into place for all of those variables to make sense. One thing that prosecution brought up at the trial that was fascinating, they wheeled in every single firearm that he owned. It was on display for the entire world. There were photographs, you had real weapons and all this stuff, and there were tons of weapons. And not only that, he's got the money to build his own private, you know, firing range at this property. And so 
with your own personal firing range and with a wide variety of weapons, all you gotta do is practice. You have the means and the opportunity to do this. So that's another part to this. Is that possibly part of the cover-up, making it look a little messy? Is that part of it, as we would see in the movies? I think that goes back to the narrative, is he a mastermind? This poor woman wound up dying, and he should have known better. The fact that this weapon discharged, again, I don't believe in accidental discharges. It's not my thing. I've seen too many cases where people will try to sell me this bill of goods. You know, most of the time I'm not buying it. But with this case, I think that comes back to the Airweight Smith. Did he actually pull that hammer back so that all it would take is a very, very light touch on that trigger and that he's scared and he tenses up, maybe he hits a bump, maybe that's what initiates this trigger. But if he is so proficient with weapons, wouldn't you know better than to do that? Particularly with your wife seated immediately in front of you. Right there, lie is the question. Was there any type of a motive? Because so far, to your exact point, none of it really, at least in my purview, adds up. And I know that was a very complicated thing for police as well. This became a matter of perception. Some people could tell one narrative and everyone else could take another narrative. And it was really hard to prove either way, I would assume. Just two months after shooting his wife, Tex shocked the community when he threw an everything-must-go-fire sale. It consisted of Diane's clothes, jewelry, and purses. While the district attorney tried to stop the sale on the grounds of potentially disposing of evidence, Tex was allowed to move forward. The auction was advertised as the fabulous Diane MacGyver's items to lure in even more people. Hundreds of potential shoppers made the whole scene look like a department store on Black Friday. While the sale looked quite peculiar, Tex publicly said that Diane left a good fortune of her estate to friends and employees and that he needed money immediately. Was he trying to build a nest egg for a potentially costly legal defense? Here's Stephanie. Tex sold everything from jewelry to clothing and it seemed to really bother people. And I think that in and of itself also kind of gave it a bad look. And on the flip of that, he also probably needed to come up with some money to pay for what is now an impending legal defense. I don't know that all was right in the state of Denmark because they put forward this narrative that he is this vastly wealthy person. It's actually Diane that's the really wealthy person here. It's not him. And obviously this guy's, he's a high-end attorney, you know, but I don't necessarily think he could match her financial status. Look, man, lawyers cost money, as we all know. And yeah, he's setting up an offense, and I'm sure that she had many items that would be very valuable. Despite some seemingly strange moves Tex was making, the Atlanta police officially ruled the shooting an accident a few months later. While Tex probably thought this meant he was in the clear, the closing allowed the district attorney to open their own investigation, and they proved to be less forgiving. It was discovered that at the time of Diane's death, Tex owed his wife $350,000. It was a loan that, according to Diane, needed to be paid back by December. She was shot to death in September. The district attorney decided that unlike the Atlanta police, this was no accident and they charged Tex with murder. While out on bail, the DA searched his condo and found a gun in Tex's sock drawer. This finding violated his bond. While the 74-year-old claimed the gun was planted, the judge was not buying it and Tex was sent to jail. 
One thing that was also fairly significant, both in the press and at trial, is that after this garage sale of all of Diane's things, Tex took a very, very big hit. His former friend and the major star witness, Danny Joe, you remember she was the driver, she totally turned on him. And she told police at the night of the shooting, Tex told her to lie altogether and say she wasn't there. And we have a voicemail that he left for Danny's husband. And it's all pretty bizarre. Let's listen to it because, again, I get kind of stuck in my head on this one. It's so confusing. Let me just be plain. Danny is about to send me to prison. Please erase this this voicemail message, but call me right away. Y'all have no idea the problem this is causing. It's innocent, but it's absolutely nuclear for me. On the one hand, is it possible that he was saying, stay out of this? This is messy. It's imploding and snowballing in a direction I could have never expected. And suddenly I'm being looked at as a prime suspect in my wife's murder when this we all know was a tragic accident. So maybe just lie and say you weren't here. Is that one perspective? On the flip of that, police must have been very suspicious when they know text was telling a star witness to frankly lie. The optics are bad. It doesn't bode well. And that dropped like a thunderbolt when that got out, because again, it goes to this idea of deception. This is the thing that really gets me. I spend a lot of time around attorneys and, you know, covering cases and whatnot. And the one thing that attorneys know, particularly criminal defense attorneys will tell you is to keep your mouth shut. This guy is a member of the bar. He understands just at a rudimentary level. Maybe he's not a criminal practitioner, but he understands this. That's why attorneys make the big bucks. Any questions should be directed to my attorney. And the attorney should be in his face saying, don't you contact anybody. You keep your mouth shut. As a matter of fact, give me your phone. I'll contact you. Don't talk to anybody. Assume everybody is listening. Now you have this event that's kind of snowballing, if you will. He's trying to get his hands around it. One of the problems with this, if this had just happened to some average citizen, it would not have had the glaring lights of the media on it like it did. I mean, this thing was big news because it's got everything that media wants, you know, relative to, you know, this it couple, if you will. They've got a home in Buckhead, you know, which is the affluent area of Atlanta. And then they've got this large country estate that's the envy of anybody. And he's an attorney and she's got her own interest. And so with the media, they're not going to leave this alone. Once that blood is in the water for the media, they're going to go after it. And of course, the court prosecutor is going to cast their gaze that as well, because this is the kind of case that will make or break the career of a DA. It's so true what people do for power and passion or for money, right? Because that became a big piece of this case as well. The prosecution really made it clear that they believed money and greed were at the core of this and that Diane was worth three to four million dollars. That's a lot of money. And as you mentioned earlier, he was not nearly as affluent, although successful in his own right. And during the trial, it was revealed that Texas salary had recently been completely cut in half. So he started to hit some financial hard times. And, you know, they had a very lavish lifestyle with luxury homes that sound extraordinary, cars and big over-the-top lavish parties. Perhaps Tex was living beyond his means. So they have this big ranch. It's obviously worth a lot of money. Before they got married, Tex borrowed $350,000 from Diane. 
And as payment, he deeded her half of the ranch. They also agreed that if he didn't pay her back, she could foreclose on the ranch at any time. And that potentially would not have been in his best interest. And maybe that was a motive for murder. The prosecution argued that by killing his wife, then ultimately Tex could take over the ranch and Tex stood to gain a lot financially speaking and that ultimately he would take over all of the ranch and any of the finances from there. Is that possible? Because that became a really big part of the trial. I'll put it to you this way. From an investigative standpoint, it's certainly the thread on the proverbial sweater as an investigator that you want to pull. Because all things have to be considered, it requires a certain level of uh, sophistication when you're thinking about accounts and money and who stands to gain in a particular circumstance. What could go to motive in this particular instance? What is seen and unseen? You know, because people that are really wealthy have a way of hiding things that, you know, the common street tough doesn't have that ability. You strong arm rob somebody on the side of the road, uh, there's only a few places you can put the cash or the wallet or the purse that you've stolen or whatever the case might be. But when you, you start to get into this level, do you have multiple accounts? Do you have offshore accounts? All of those types of things have to be considered. And so that's one of the things that the DA in particular would have been tasked with looking into in their investigative team, because there's two separate investigative teams here. You've got the police that actually investigate the crime as it occurs and you know the homicide and all this sort of thing. A lot of people don't understand that they're or a separate set of investigators that actually work for the DA. And they're looking at this too, and they're going to bring in every possible resource. All DAs, no matter where they are, are political animals. There's all the more motive on the part of the DA to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Let's stop here for another break. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case, though, and that's the part that's always so troubling and hats off to judges, ultimately, because it's a lot to take into consideration. Even in this case, you know, the jury was was given a lot to think about and a lot to unpack. One of the things that they heard was that Tex chose not to pick up his wife's ashes for 42 days. And when he did pick up the ashes, he actually stored them in the back of a closet And the doctor that treated Diane right before her death said that she didn't want to see him right before surgery. She had no desire to have any FaceTime with him. And again, this all seems to be rather circumstantial. But when I think about his death, it seems as though a lot of small factors would have to have really fallen into place nicely for him to pull this off. And on the flip, maybe that's the greatest murder story of all time. What do you think about all of this? Circumstantial evidence is all relative. And, you know, the prosecutor 
they can take that and craft that narrative because again they're building this titanic case it's it's massive to try to present to the jury to get a guilty verdict that's the sole goal of the prosecutor and for the defense all they have to do is bore a hole in one tiny area of that and it implants the seed of reasonable doubt and it'll take root many times the trick is can the prosecution with these little cues along the way are they able to dodge reasonable doubt are they able to present a case that is actually sellable to the jury the biggest piece of it to me though was danny joe turning on tex that was huge that's where i get even more confused I'm so torn, but then I think back, Danny Joe, it would be to her benefit to stick to the story that was honest and true, to hopefully get her beloved friend off for a crime he didn't commit, in her opinion, but she didn't do that. Yeah, was she truly his beloved friend though? Or was she more of a friend to Diane? I mean, I don't know. Maybe after a period of time, this is making her sick to her back teeth. Remember the smell, the moan, the scream, you know, suddenly that's with her. It's ringing in her ears. She will never, and I mean never, be able to escape that. She's never going to drive through downtown Atlanta again and not think about it. So I don't know if it's a turning as much as it is kind of a revelatory moment for her. Joseph, back to other things being brought into the trial to really poke holes in the prosecution's argument. One of the main things that they brought into it was this notion of parasomnia. I had never heard this term before, but apparently when Tex was in the back seat, it was reported that maybe he dozed off and that he was diagnosed with something called parasomnia. It's sort of a term that covers a broad spectrum of sleep disorders, sleep paralysis, confusion upon waking, maybe involuntary movements, narcolepsy. So the idea set forth by the defense was that he had this condition and had been diagnosed with it prior and that he might have dozed off with a gun in his lap. And when he woke up because of maybe a bump on the road or something, he had an involuntary movement and therefore the gun discharged. What do you make of that? Sure. I suppose it's possible. I don't know. I mean, uh, I've suddenly jerked myself awake many times and, you, you know, you're kind of frightened like this. But again, the one thing I can't get past, and I will never get past in this case, if you are so hyper aware of the environment in which you're in and you're scared to the point where you're going to say, hand me my gun, how is it that suddenly you drift off? I, I guess it's a clinical rationale for it that, you know, a defense attorney can put forward and that's fine. You can put that forward. But thinking about this, I, I cannot begin to, to imagine that suddenly you're in this hypervigilant state, which you're in, you've got the 38 lightweight in your lap, not in your pocket, but in your lap. And this is a person that's trained with weapons. Hell, they even own their own gun range. Suddenly you're going to drift off. That's really hard for me to digest. After a 20-day trial, the jury began to deliberate. But after four days, they were deadlocked. The judge urged them to reconsider, and then just two hours later, they had a verdict. Tex was found not guilty of malice murder, but guilty of felony murder. Here's Joseph. This case is so compelling and will be compelling for years and years to come. There are no definitive answers in here. Yeah, I mean, with the trial, they came back with a guilty verdict. But, you know, this is the type of case 
that there will always be questions about because there are no solid answers. Should he have gone to Grady? Should he have gone to Emory? Should they have taken a side road? Why are you so scared and why are you sleeping at the same time? How do those two things mesh? How can you be so careless with a weapon if you own all these guns and you own a gun range? How is this possible? So, you know, forever and ever, amen, there will always be questions. Ultimately, in the end, Tex was found not guilty of malice murder, but guilty of felony murder. So that's a very key difference and an, and an unusual difference at that, meaning he was found not guilty of malice, meaning he didn't intend to kill Diane, but he was found guilty of felony murder, and that means he meant to shoot her, but not to kill her. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, you said it very succinctly. In this particular case, you got one of two choices. Malice, which says, I am intending to go out and take the life of another. And it's, it's a very fine line when you drop down from that level to felonious homicide or felonious murder, where they're saying, yeah, you brought about the death of this individual. Now we can't prove intent, but you did in fact, as a result of your actions, inflicted grievous bodily injury. And that's, that's lawyer terminology most of the time. It resulted in her death. And it's hard for people to understand when you have degrees of separation in the law as it applies to homicide, it's more succinct, but in Georgia, it's a bit more difficult. And this is the interesting thing about it is that uh, Georgia is a capital murder state they have the death penalty there. So that's been, you know, one of the, the things over the years that people have talked about. When you talk about general, Georgia criminal law, you know, how, how do you, you know, hit that level, you know, when you're talking about malice homicide, because malice homicide begins to include things like capital punishment. If you have intent and they don't really talk about premeditation, it's, that's a different, a different animal, but you have specific intent to take the life of somebody that'll qualify you for capital punishment, perhaps. At his sentencing, Tex read a statement largely about his wife, Diane. On this earth, she was my life and made me complete. Certainly not that way now. Because I know she's here, I feel her presence as I speak her Darling, you have brought me more joy and fulfillment than few men on this earth have ever known. Thank you, and until we are together again, because it is who we will be. It is truly. Thank you. The judge was unmoved by his words and sentenced Tex to life in prison. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Piketon Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.